Welcome to Christian Life Academy. We're working our way through the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession in Chapter 2 of God and the Holy Trinity. We are finishing it today. Um, we're actually working right now, actually a little bit past the confession, because um, Paragraph 3 is on the Trinity, and um, we are now working on going through uh, what some of the uh, different views are um, well, we actually last week covered about some opposing philosophies to the Trinity, why they have problems with it. Uh, it's not that they're all arrayed against it. It's that they uh, have a problem with it because it contradicts their philosophies. And so um, they have a reason to uh, basically have a problem with the Trinity and uh, as a result with a problem with, a, a problem with Christianity in general uh, because it contradicts basically their view. So after we covered those uh, seven philosophies, now we've moved to uh, talk about uh, basically some arguments against the Trinity and why we disagree with those arguments and uh, criticisms. And so I'm going to actually just back up. We finished the first three. And uh, so I'm going to back up here just so that we can just touch on them before we move on with the others because um, they are important to understand. Obviously, uh, those who have a problem with the Trinity, that have, a, have an issue with the Trinity, they don't necessarily all lock onto one particular argument. Some do. Some, you know, they have a problem with one particular argument against the Trinity. But many actually embrace several arguments against the Trinity. And uh, for the most part, as you'll see as we work through them, uh, they're all based on uh, just a, kind of an overall assumption that Christianity isn't true, the Bible isn't real, um, God even is not what we believe he is and what the scripture tells us. And so as a result, then, the Trinity can't be true. Does that make sense? In other words, if you're an atheist and you don't believe that God is real, then you certainly um, can say that you don't believe in the Trinity. You see what I mean, right? So that's the way kind of some of these arguments work out. But let's just, let's just touch back on them one more time just to be clear about what they are. So first of all, is this criticism that God is unknowable? Uh, inexpressible and incomprehensible. Therefore, uh, we cannot know anything about God. He does not reveal himself in any kind of revelation. Well, obviously, um, right off the bat, this is a self-defeating argument. And this is worth considering that this is an argument sometimes that people will make against Christianity, particularly when you're sharing the gospel with them, is that they will make some kind of a statement like this. It's kind of like the atheist saying, there's absolutely no God. and um, Or, more importantly, this would be their argument, there's absolutely no ultimate truth. There is no set truth. You can't say that the Bible's truth is absolutely the truth. Why? Well, because there is no absolute truth. There is no absolute uh, way we can know anything is true. Okay, then if, you, then if that's true, how can you say absolutely that there is no truth? You see the self-defeating argument? In other words, if someone says there can't be any absolute truth, you can't know for sure there's any absolute truth, they're saying except for my truth that I just told you. You see what I mean? It doesn't make any sense. The same is true with an atheist saying there's absolutely no God. Very easy to deflect that argument if they have any logic. If they have no logic, well, it's not even worth having that discussion. That's casting your, you know, that's dealing with the fool. But if they have any logic, it's real easy to say, well, do you know everything? Is there absolutely any way that you could know everything that's true in, in every sphere of reality? No. Well, then how do you know the part that you don't know about doesn't say that God is real. How do you know that? How can you prove that the part that you know covers knowledge of God? 
when there's billions of people that contradict you? They can't know that, right? It's an absolutely self-defeating argument that no one would in their right mind say that they know everything about everything. And so because of that, it's very easy to say, well, what about the part that, maybe the part you don't know is that there's no God. And they say, well, no, I know that part for sure. Really? What else do you know for sure? How do you know that that's true? How do you know that what you know isn't correct? If you don't know everything, then maybe what you don't know is that you're wrong. You see what I mean? Logical arguments like, like that are really easy to make. The thing is, is a lot of times we don't even go down that path because we just don't think about it. We just don't think about the simple fact that they, most of these arguments are self-defeating arguments. They don't make sense. This argument is, a, is one of those. It's a self-defeating argument. Because what they're saying is God is unknowable, inexpressible, and incomprehensible. There we can't know, therefore, we can't know anything about God. He doesn't reveal himself in any revelation. Well, first of all, if God is unknowable, how do you know that? How do you know that God is unknowable? You see what I'm saying? It, it doesn't make sense. It's a self-defeating argument. I say on there, obviously you can see another bullet point. Clearly we repudiate this with the doctrine of Scripture, where God himself reveals to us all that we need to know about him. And then the second argument is all religious doctrines are created in the religious experience of the worshipers. Therefore, the Bible is not divine revelation. Instead, it is a collection of experiences by the writer. And of course, you understand that we don't view this as correct at all because this, this is absolutely a man-centered view, right? This is not a view of a higher... Think about it this way. If somebody had actually made this argument to you, it would be very easy to say to them, well, look, if that's true, then that means that anything that man writes is discounted because a group of people wrote it? There is no truth? I mean, if somebody wrote that there's such a thing as gravity... Is that not absolutely true because of the evidence that we see? Because we can know outside of their statement that there is other examples to prove that gravity is real? It's not just true because groups of people write it. You can't discount it because some people say that it's true, and so automatically that makes it untrue. Look, the fact that people said that the COVID vaccinations were harmful for you doesn't automatically make that not true. And the fact that some people said that the COVID vaccinations were, hard, were, were good for you doesn't make that absolutely true. Are you with me on this? And, by the way, here, here's a little tidbit for you. Don't mean to give too much of a noodle cooker here. But the fact that they throw the word science into their argument doesn't make it true either. Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, it's the science. The science proves what? Depends who you ask. The science proves the vaccinations are good. The science proves the vaccinations are bad. The science is indeterminate. I've heard all those arguments. Using the word science doesn't make it more true or less true. Why? What science? Which science? What science are you talking about? You're talking about the pharmaceutical companies that actually want to make money by selling you vaccinations and there are the government officials that have a vested interest in the pharmaceutical company? You're talking about that's truth? Huh. Seem like a problem, maybe, right? You understand. So this argument that it's only the religious experience of the worshipers are how we got the doctrine of God, it's only their experience, that does not innately make it untrue. It doesn't innately make it true. The fact of the matter is, is that if the Scripture is God's revealed word, there's no arguing with it. Now, a bigger question about Scriptures in general 
when you're talking to somebody who has a question about it or they're questioning the validity of scriptures or that kind of thing, the bigger question is, okay, let's just step back for a second. Let's just play a what-if game. What if God exists? And what if he wants to tell him, us about himself? How would he do it? How would he do it? How would he do it in a way that we could understand and relate to and not treat the message as what's holy instead of the person or the being behind the message? It's a good question. Well, he would make it appear as some golden tablets. And what would happen? Man would idolize the tablets. Truth cultures throughout history. Man would idolize the tablets. Why don't we have the Ark of the Covenant today? Ever wonder that? It's in a warehouse. <laughs> we, don't, we don't know specifically, because the scriptures don't tell us specifically, but we do know this. Man had his tendency to worship idols. If the Ark of the Covenant was actually revealed today and brought forth, you think people wouldn't worship that? Sure they would. Should they? No. But they would. Many would. This is why the scripture was written by men who were inspired. So just ask the question. Or here's a better question. Could God, assuming that God exists, choose to use men to write his message? Could he use men to speak his message? Of course he could. He's God. So you can't make the argument that, well, God wouldn't do it this way. It's just the, wait a minute. Couldn't God choose to use this method? If he's God, couldn't he choose to use? Yes, of course he could choose to use Now we have a real quandary with your argument. Because if your argument is, is that it's only the experience of those personal people that wrote about what God was, and that's all that the Bible tells us is what those people thought about it, now you're admitting that God could have indeed used that method, so now your argument about that that's not true about God just falls apart. You can't, it can't be correct. Does that make sense? Again, don't go too far down this path. Why? You're not going to convince someone to be saved through logic. That's impossible. You're not going to convince someone to be saved through logic. Why? What's it take? Holy Spirit. It takes the Holy Spirit. You can't summon the Holy Spirit. Well, if I make a good enough logical argument, Holy Spirit has to convict them. Is that true? Of course that's not true. Of course that's not true. So it's okay to make an argument that which might soften their heart, which would actually open, cause them to open up a little bit and be more prepared to receive the Spirit's conviction. Hmm? Why do we, is that true? Do people need to have their mind and their hearts open more for the Spirit to do its work? Must they? They must not. The Holy Spirit can turn someone's heart prepared or not. But we also know that we are commanded to share the gospel. We are commanded to preach the gospel. So yes, there is some impact on most people that causes them to be more ready to receive the conviction and the turning of their heart from stone to flesh by the Holy Spirit. If that was not true, there would be no reason to preach. 
there'd be no reason to preach. None. Because the Holy Spirit would just change their heart. That's it. Done deal. They would know that they're guilty of sin. They would know that they need to turn to Christ. Why? It's written on their hearts. So we already know it's written on their hearts. But they reject it. Why? Hearts of stone, not hearts of flesh. So don't be afraid to have these discussions. Don't be afraid to have these discussions. The second you start thinking that, well, God doesn't need me to say anything for that person to get saved, absolutely true, except that he's commanded you to share the gospel. He's commanded you to do this. That simple. All right. Three. All description of God are only metaphors. Therefore, God has not revealed his true nature, so man has attempted to describe God with their own personal experience, and those descriptions change from culture to culture and time to time. All right. So this argument is based on the idea that the entire scripture, in fact, the entire reflection of who God is or what he is or what he thinks, are all metaphors. Now, if they're metaphors, what does that mean? What is a metaphor? Who has a good, you're very confident, definition of a metaphor, what a metaphor is? A metaphor, of course, is not just for the scripture, right? It's a language concept. Not true just for English, true for all languages. What is a metaphor? Anybody? Good definition. Okay, semi-good definition. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Anybody have a guess? It's okay. It's all right. Elders, you can chip in too if you want to, unless you're a little scared too about what I'm going to say. It's all right. I'm not going to criticize. Anybody have a, met- a definition of what a metaphor is? What would a metaphor be? Okay, now, did everyone hear what he said? Direct comparison between two objects and one to describe the other. So the idea would be is that a metaphor is, is using something, it's using language to describe something so that you'll understand something else. Do you see what I mean? So when, for instance, a metaphor about God would be that he shelters them under his wing. So does God have a wing? No, it's reflecting the characteristic of God protecting someone or sheltering or taking someone close to him, right? What's the idea? The idea is of a a dog. No, it's of a bird, right? Sheltering its young. That's what you is that what you picture? Right? The do, that's it's a metaphor. Now, that's also quasi anthropomorphism. Not quite, but kind of. It's really a metaphor. But it's kind of an anthropomorphism. What is an anthropomorphism? That's where we give human characteristics to God. So again, we understand. What would be an example of that? He holds them in his hand. Is he literally holding them in a hand? No. It's giving an anthropomorphism to God to reflect his control of something. Do you see what I mean? So, when... This idea that every description of God is a metaphor is really saying that, in essence, we don't know who God truly is because they're all just concepts that reflect God. Now, that in itself is a problem. If everything written was a metaphor, then we would still have an idea who God is. Right? Look, when I, when I talk about the... Hold, shelters them under his wing. Do you not get a concept of who God is? You do. How about holds them in his hand? 
Does that not give you a concept of who God is? It does. In other words, the idea that if everything in Scripture is a metaphor, then we can't truly understand who God is and what his nature is, well, that's a self-defeating argument. If it's a metaphor, and we understand the metaphor, then we know who God is. Sense? We, we do know who he is through this. Now, is, are there some things in the Scripture, I just gave a couple examples, that are metaphors about God? Yes. Those anthropomorphisms, of course, those are there too, right? There's other literary concepts that are used throughout the Scripture to describe God. Now, the reason that they're used is because we have, need to have a better understanding of God, and it's easier sometimes for us to understand those when we could picture something in our minds that we're more familiar with. You're familiar with holding something in your hand, right? So to, to have the idea that God is holding somebody or some people or some nation in his hand gives you an idea of the control he has, right? It gives you an idea of this. It does help you to actually understand God better because you have these different literary things. Now, does that mean then that everything about God could be a metaphor? Well, no. No. Why? Well, because sometimes it's very direct. The scripture is very direct. God loves this. God hates this. Is that clear or not clear? God created this. God will destroy this. this is not, there's not some question here about if that's somehow a metaphor to describe God. It actually doesn't make any sense. What was that? God is holy. Is that a metaphor? It doesn't mean holy. It means, what does it mean then? Okay. Good? All right. Who defines good? Probably God. Holy. There you go. Full circles. You understand, though, the concept being that if somebody makes this argument that the only way that we can know God is through metaphors, that's almost a self-defeating argument in of itself, right? But clearly, they don't also know the Scripture. Because the Scripture gives us so many... The majority of Scriptures that describe God are direct explanations of who God is or what His position is. Now, when I say His position... I don't mean his position of sitting on the throne. I mean his position like he hates murderers. Right? That's clearly God's... The scriptures are not unclear about this. They're very clear. There's no metaphor used you know, to describe what God thinks about someone who murders someone. Does that make sense? By the way, nor is there any confusion about what God thinks about homosexuals. It's explicitly clear explicitly clear. Anyone who tries to say it's not is trying to discount the Scripture. Now, this happens all the time. All the time. Sadly. Shockingly. All the time. Why? Probably because whoever it is that compromises has someone close to them who has declared themselves to be a homosexual. That's usually why. And they don't actually know how to deal with it. So they just automatically turn to, that's not actually what God means. That's not what he means. He means something different. Or, we need to find a version of the Bible that's more up to date. Or, that's cultural. You see these things all the time. This is why the doctrine of the scripture is so important. God's word was written for all men at all times. It was not written for the people at that time. It wasn't written for the people at that time. Only. Are there things that were written in some books 
that were more applicable to some groups than to others? Absolutely. How about Leviticus? Right? So what is Leviticus largely made out of? What is mo most of Leviticus is a book about what? What? Got a lot of answers. Good. What? Ceremonial law. What do you say? Law. What do you say, Bev? Law. Okay, good. So, yeah, law. Now, are all the laws in Leviticus only applicable to the nation of Israel? No, not all. Some are. Ceremonial laws are, right? You have to have this feast. You have to do it this way. You have to do this way to sacrifice you know, a lamb or a goat or a bull. All, here's all the process that you have to go through. Here's how someone becomes clean. Here's what happens if someone's defiled. All of these things laid out in Leviticus were important for the nation of Israel. They were written and given to Moses to give to the children of Israel. All of those things mattered to them directly. But God still included it in his word. It's still in the canon of scripture. Why? Because it still matters to us. It matters to us. Were there other books written by the same people who wrote books in the Bible that we don't have in the Scripture? There are. How do we know that? Does anyone have an example? I'm throwing up, I'm giving, like, you can spike it. I'm throwing the ball right up by the net. Paul refers to letters that he wrote. That he wrote, yep. Specifically, got one? Laodicea. He specifically refers to a letter that he wrote to Laodicea. Is that book in the Scripture? No, not in the Scripture, right? Why? God didn't include it in the Scripture. Does that mean that he was wrong in it? It doesn't mean that he was wrong in it. Well, let me ask you this. Is everything that Christ taught the disciples in the Scripture? No, it's not all in the Scripture. Does that mean that what he didn't, what didn't get written in the scripture where he taught was wrong? No, it doesn't mean it. It means that for whatever reasons he had, God chose not to include that in the scripture. God chose not to include it, right? What he did include is what he intended for us to have. Well, this is why many doctrines of the scripture that we talk about, whether it's the preservation of scripture, whether it's verbal plenary inspiration, all of those doctrines of scripture that are not only in our confession, but we see reflected in the scriptures themselves, must be accepted as true. As soon as you take one of those out of the equation, the scripture's validity falls completely apart. You can't trust it. Now this is why translations are such a huge deal. A huge deal. If someone wants to change the scripture because they don't like something in the scripture, they actually make an effort to do it, that version of the scripture is now no longer the complete word of God. Can you see this? Or, if somebody wants to change the way we look at a particular doctrine, and so they change verses in the scripture, or they eliminate them, or they add them, in some way they try to modify the scripture so it doesn't say what God originally intended for it to say to us, that also becomes a completely invalid version or translation. This is why this is so important. You can definitely find versions today that don't say homosexuality is wrong. They've changed it. You could definitely find versions of Scripture today that, say, that take out the idea that a pastor or an elder has to be male. It's changed. They've actually added words to change it. 
Why? Well, that was true for the culture, but today we're more enlightened. And so we need a scripture that reflects that. That's how easy that argument goes. That's how easy that argument goes. The fact of the matter is, is that God was, can we, can we agree with this? God is capable of writing the Bible in a way that applies to all people for all times. Is God capable of doing that or is he incapable? I mean, clearly, we're not going to go down that path, right? We all agree, and you know I've said it so many times, that God is capable of doing anything. So, of course, he could have written the scripture in a way and included what he wanted to include so that it applied to men from all time. Right? And if that's the case, we cannot say that God being described in metaphors somehow means that the scripture is now, therefore, is invalid. If God wants us to know who he is, and he actually inspires men to write his word, his message to us, clearly he can lay out to us who he is, however he wants to lay it out. If he wants to use a metaphor, if he wants to use similes, if he, whatever he wants to use, he can do that. And by the way, there is similes about God. With me so far? Four, Trinitarianism expresses or represents a sexist, male-centered religion and worldview which has encouraged the male domination of society. If God is male, then male is God. Okay, so <laughs> it's funny. A few of you laughed at this. And it, you know, it is funny because the argument is so ridiculous that uh, it's, it's funny to laugh at. But there are many who embrace this as absolutely the truth. The Trinitarianism cannot be correct because Trinitarianism with God the Father makes it male. So let's look at the points. This is a straw man argument. Clearly God does not elevate man to God's status in any way. The fact that God is masculinely described in the scripture does not make men gods. Can we agree with this? The first man sinned, fell, was condemned with physical death and, in fact, with spiritual death if he doesn't believe and repent. There is no hint in the scriptures that men all are equal with God. So the idea that God is male, therefore male is God, is ridiculous. The, the perversion or neglect of Christianity has downgraded the role of women. This is one of their... One of their arguments is that Christianity has downgraded the role of women. Notice the next bullet point. The Hebrews of the Old Testament and the Church of the New Testament had a higher view and appreciation for women than any other religion or culture contemporary to them. Okay, so that it just historically, it's the opposite of that statement. It's the, the perversion or neglect of Christianity has downgraded the role of women. That's absolutely... False. Christianity has exalted women to a higher place. Every other religion that's existed during these same times, the time of the church, New Testament church, the time of the Hebrews and the nation of Israel, other cultures, other religions, all downgraded women. They were all viewed as less than male. Many viewed women as property. Many viewed women as having no social standing other than 
property. That's it. Christianity elevated women. This argument is false. For example, in other religions, contract marriages forced upon a young girl against her will that was not practiced in Israel. It wasn't practiced in Israel. In the Bible, a young man paid a dowry to a girl's family for the privilege of marriage. But European aristocracy perverted that by forcing a young woman's family to pay a young man to take their daughter in marriage, downgrading her to something they must pawn off with a payment to get the young man to take her. That's where it went. Christianity did not teach that the, that the family needed to pay a man to take a daughter. It was the other way. The man had to pay for the daughter. It was he had to give the family something for the right to take her in marriage. She was precious. She was precious. And by the way, could a daughter be married to a man without a dowry? Yes, absolutely they could. But do we see examples of Scripture where it's not that way? Yes, absolutely we do. Absolutely. Can you think of someone right off the top of your head who had to work seven years to get a wife, and then he got tricked, and then he had to work seven more years to get a wife that maybe Brance has talked about recently? Jacob. Right. Laban didn't work for Jacob. Right. Jacob worked for Laban. They were viewed as precious, special. You want, you want to marry you've got to prove yourself. Show me you've got the resources to take care of her. Show me that you're going to be able to provide for her as you should be able to. And, of course, today, this is obviously we're way down the path on this. But we're not even in a realm anymore where Christian principles and biblical principles about how young men and young women should actually get together are even looked at, not even considered. Not even considered anymore. Unfortunately, true for most believers as well. And if you're one of the ones, you're one of the parents who actually brings up the idea of, well, before I give you permission, permission to marry my daughter, there's a foreign concept, the father must give permission to someone to marry his daughter, before I give you permission, show me that you're going to have the income to pay for her life, to make her, to, for her to live, that you're going to be able to provide for her to have food and clothing and shelter. And what if she gets pregnant? How are you going to provide for her and the baby? Now you do that today? Oh, you're unbelievable. You're unreasonable as a father. It's a view. Many, many young couples have struggled and been in misery. Some divorced because they weren't ready to get married. They weren't ready. And I'm not talking about emotionally. Oh, they believed their emotions told them they were ready. I mean financially. They weren't ready. Ready. So then they ended up dealing with struggles and problems, and that led one thing to another and, and the relationship. It's common. Yeah, that was what I just covered. Okay. Five. The books of the Bible are to be interpreted according to the modern historical critical method. They are to be treated as ancient religious books, and in terms of the times and context they were originally written, they do not apply in their ancient forms to anyone other than those whom they were written to at the time that they were written. Have you heard that before? 
this. This is the argument that most modern translations use. So certainly we do believe that we need to take into consideration the time and the situation where the authors of the Bible wrote, right? Certainly we believe that. No question. And there can be things that are confusing to us and that we don't understand, and we get a better understanding if we understand why this particular thing was mentioned. And by the way, that's not only true that way, but it's also true another way, where sometimes something is written in a certain way, and we actually don't understand why, it was, why they wrote it, why God says it that way in his word, why the writer wrote it that way in the book, and we don't know the answer. We, do, we don't know. Was that, a, was that a cultural thing that he needed to explain to people why this was the way it was or what was happening here or something like that? And so he used a literary device that they understood and we don't? We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. If it was that intentional for us to know it, could God have made that clearer? Yes, he could have. He could have. But when the Bible clearly indicates that a man and a woman, when they are married, then they come together sexually, then that's what it means. It's not cultural. It's not cultural. When the Bible says don't fornicate or don't commit adultery, that's not cultural. When the Bible says don't lie, don't steal, don't murder, don't blaspheme God, that's not cultural. It's very clear. Very clear. We also have to recognize that this is not any ordinary ancient book. This is not Plato. This is not Aristotle. It's the inspired word of God. Given as a revelation for people at all times, his word, like his very nature, is unchanging. God does not change. If he did, would he be God? If God says this is holy and then he changes his mind and now this is holy and that wasn't holy anymore, what he said before, would he be God? Could we trust anything? That would really be the issue, right? If God changes and his standards change, then you can trust nothing. Because how do you know it didn't change? Make sense? And by the way, the most concerned you should be about that is not that well, maybe now it's okay to lie. God before said it was okay, wasn't okay to lie, but now he's changed, and now it's okay to lie. That's not the thing you should be worried about. The thing you should be worried about is, what's going to happen to your soul for eternity? And did he change his mind on that one? Is that a little more scary? If God changes in his nature, if he changes the things that are in his word, so now they mean something different, he doesn't mean the same thing for different people, then you should be concerned that maybe it's not going to be the same way for you to get to heaven. Maybe Christ's sacrifice isn't enough for you. Maybe you've got to do something different. Maybe you have to go on a pilgrimage. No. We believe God is unchanging. That when he says something, he means it. He does not lie. He doesn't go back on his word. What he says is true. And so when he wrote it in his word, and he made sure it was preserved for us to see it through the millennia, that it was because he meant for us to know it. He meant for us to hear it 
and read it to know that this was his word. So we can't just treat this like some other book and say, oh, well, you know, it's a historic book and we've got to reconsider it in light of what happened today. Do you think, for, for an instance, that Plato and what he wrote in his book, which, by the way, we have no idea if that's actually what was written by Plato. We have no idea. Do, do we think that everything in his book is applicable today? Do we even think that everything he wrote in his book is true? What if Aristotle wrote it, though? Ah, scientist. Philosopher, scientist. So if Aristotle wrote it, then certainly it must be true. Except Aristotle had so many scientific writings that were proven wrong. Even contemporary to him, they were proven wrong. That, no, everything he wrote isn't true. And there were things that they thought at the time that no one thought after that. Scientifically changed. Philosophically changed too, by the way. All of Aristotle's philosophy did not bear the test of time. Why? He was wrong. So we don't consider the Bible the same way we would consider any of those things. It's not the same. Is there another book? Again, it's a spike set up for you guys. Is there another book that the Bible specifically mentions? The Bible mentions it, but it's not part of the Scripture. And I don't mean a letter from the apostles. I mean a book that's older than that. What's the name of the book? The book of Jasher. The book of Jasher. Who mentions the book of Jasher? Now this is going to prove that it was real. Who mentions the book of Jasher? Jesus Christ mentions the book of Jasher. He talks about history, and he says, even as written in the book of Jasher, is it the word of God? His word was the word of God, but the book is not the word of God. It was not inspired. It is not in the canon of Scripture. By the way, you can buy the book of Jasher today. Is that the book of Jasher that Christ was talking about? We have no idea. We have no idea. The modern books of Jasher have a murky history that go back for about a half a millennia. Before that, no ties. No earlier copies. No ancient copies found. Critics think, believe, just from the way it's written, that it is an ancient text. But is it the one Christ talked about? We have no idea. We don't treat it the same as the Scripture. We don't look at it the same. Even if we had the original book of Jasher today, like we knew, this thing has been preserved, you know, this group of people had it all this time, there's a bunch of copies, there was a copy included in the Dead Sea Scrolls, I mean, whatever, right? So let's say that we did have the book of Jasher today. It existed. The ancient book, not included in the Scripture. So would we treat it the same? Of course not. We have cuneiforms as old as the Bible. Do we treat them the same? Of course not. Why? They're not the Word of God. That, that's the simple answer. It's not the Word of God. So when we're looking at these ancient texts and we say, well, we're going we're to believe what was written in Babylon. We're going to believe what they said in Babylon. That it must be true. 
except that was written at that time. So we're going to take it and we're going to contemporize it, and we're going to look at how, what it would be, like that's what they said to them, so what would it say to us today? Okay, that is a really, really bad way to interpret anything. Because if it was written in ancient times and it wasn't from God, what does that have to do with us today? Nothing. Nothing. God's word is applicable to us today because it's God's word. That's why. It's God's word. Are there things in the scripture that we just talked about that are not directly for us today? Yes, ceremonial law, right? We just talked about that. Not applicable for us today. But is it still in God's word? It is. Was it applicable for people after it was written? In other words, after Leviticus was written, did it apply to people past the people that actually heard it initially read to them in the wilderness? It did. Why? The nation of Israel continued to follow Leviticus. Right? Absolutely it applied to them. Until Christ's death. By then, of course, they had perverted it pretty badly too. Man-centered thinking is constantly changing with the idea that we are improving and old thoughts, methods, and actions are never as good as new. This is directly contradictory to a God-centered theology and a view of scriptures. Now you understand that that concept, by the way, is evolution. The idea that man, his thoughts, what he writes, what he knows, his knowledge, all of those things are continuously improving. That is evolution. Now, as soon as you have a hiccup in that, you have a problem with evolution. So evolutionists will do anything they can do to thwart any evidence that contradicts that man is getting smarter. Look, is it possible that man had an iPhone 2,000 years ago? Go ahead, shake your head. It's not, it's not possible. Man did not have an iPhone 2,000 years ago. That did not happen. How about, did man have a car, a gas-powered combustion engine car 3,000 years ago? No. Man did not have that. Is it possible that man had flying machines 3,500 years ago? It is possible. How is it possible? Because those same writings, those same engravings that we trust for everything else about what happened in ancient Egypt show them flying in machines. Hmm. Now why is it that talked about? It doesn't fit the narrative. It's exactly why. Thank you, Daniel. Good job. Now you're on sermon audio, so you should get kudos. It doesn't fit the narrative. See, if man had intelligence in ancient times that we didn't possess until the most recent modern times, that means man actually wasn't getting smarter for thousands of years. See this? It doesn't fit the narrative. That's why the Maps of the Sea Kings, it's a great book, not written by a Christian, written by an unbeliever, doesn't claim to be an atheist, but clearly doesn't believe in God or the Bible. He raised up a lot of questions that 
never went anywhere. Not dealt with by science. Why? Well, primarily because it doesn't fit the narrative. That actually points out that in a society before the Phoenicians, so now we're way back, before the Phoenicians actually mapped the seas, mapped the coasts, I mentioned specifically, of the eastern half of the North and South America and of Antarctica, mapped all that thousands of years before we believe anybody had the ability to do it. That means, by the way, they were smarter. They had knowledge that we don't know. How did they traverse the globe with the ships? Because we think of these ships that weren't capable of making the voyage across. It wasn't until Columbus. That's not even true at all. But it wasn't true until the Middle Ages, let's say. Let's be generous. There's no way that people traveled to the New World until the Middle Ages because to say that they did means that they had abilities and technologies and knowledge that man didn't have until that time period. If we believe somehow that man had this knowledge before, then that would mean that man actually wasn't getting smarter. Doesn't follow the narrative. They're not evolving. See this? By the way, the Romans came to the New World. That's not even denied today. You can look it up. There's Roman burial sites found all over the country, even in the West. Roman soldiers buried in America, in Central America, in South America. The Vikings came. Vikings were here. Again, they wrote stories about it, and we found burial chambers with Vikings in it. How about giants? Oh, man, don't get me started on giants. Are giants real? Do giants exist? If giants existed and man has actually gotten shorter and smaller and of less stature over time, would that mean that man is improving? Hmm. Doesn't fit the narrative. Tens of thousands of giant skeletons have been found in America. And guess who captured them all as soon as they found them? The Smithsonian. Where are they today? They have no record of them. Unfortunately, no record. Thousands of newspaper articles about giants being found in burial mounds all over the country. Officials from the Smithsonian came and collected the skeletons for further study. They disappeared. Why? Doesn't fit the narrative. Doesn't fit the narrative. I could talk about this all day. Stone walls in New England. You go in New England, there are stone walls everywhere, dividing fields. Why? They got a lot of rocks. I mean, that's, in general, they have a lot of rocks. So they have stone walls dividing fields. Why would they do that? Well, they would do that for a couple of reasons, right? Number one, you need a wall, right? You're going to hold, you want to pen in some animals. You're going to need a wall. Second, if you want to farm the field, if you want to grow crops, you need the rocks out of the way. So they move the rocks out of the way, they build walls. Now, the most people will look at it and say, oh, look at this. So these walls, well, you know, this is a 200-year-old wall. It's a 300-year-old wall. Except that the walls existed when this country was settled. They found the walls. The pilgrims found walls in Massachusetts. And they asked the Indians, why did you build these walls? They said, we didn't build the walls. They were here when we got here. There are walls with chambers all over New England. We've been to some. All over New England. Some of them are potentially a thousand years old. 
thousand years old. That flies in the face of our current view of history. Why? Why is that not discussed? Clear. Because it runs against the narrative. Right? So, this idea that we can only interpret the Bible in terms of what it means today is flying in the face of what everything has meant through time. We cannot trust what man says today about what some ancient book back then because there's a narrative. People have an agenda. So when you see a new scripture translation, you must know beyond certainty what the agenda of the translator is. And if you don't know for sure what the agenda of the translator is, if you don't know positively what the, what the translator's agenda is, you cannot trust that scripture. You can't trust it. You can say, well, I, I think they have good intentions. I mean, they wrote that they had good intentions. There is this thing that people do called lying. I don't know if you've heard of it. But sometimes they lie to make you think something is not true. Where do we see that? Where's the first one? Where? Where was it? So we know the location. Where was it? Eden. Eden. Who lied? Eve? Satan. First lie, Satan. You won't surely die. Remember that? Still happening. Except we picked it up pretty good. Doing it too. God is the cosmos and the world is God's body. Heard this before? God is the cosmos and the cosmos and the world is God's body. Well, this is pantheism. The idea that everything is God and God is everything. The idea that God is not outside the universe but contained within it. So this belief would then makes the Trinity nothing more than the way we experience God in the natural world. Right? If God is everything and everything is God, then that means the Trinity is not real. That just gives us some indication of how we interact with God in that he is in everything. Like God is in the stand, he is in the table, he is in the air, he's in the sky, he's in the projector, he's in all this stuff. That's the idea. That's pantheism. Most common and way to get people to believe pantheism that's come out in modern history is Star Wars. What's the force? In Star Wars, there's the force. What is the force? It's a living thing that exists in all of us, in and through us. It's a power. It's an organism. It exists. And this, this force is behind everything that happens, either for good or for bad. And that is pantheism. The force is pantheism. Now, you'd like to think that this is not something that people would actually believe, but it's just absolutely not true. People do believe this. You hear this parroted all the time. And there are religions that embrace this. However, God is distinct from and transcendent over his creation. He did not create the universe and then became a part of it. And you hear the term, God is in all of us. No, he's not. God is in all things. No, he's not. He is over all things. Is he everywhere? He is. Can he somehow occupy the same space as other objects in our universe? Of course he can. Yes. That does not mean that that is God. God is not in that table. Does that make sense? Think of it this way. If Christ 
could walk through a wall. And the scriptures describe him doing that. Walked into a room through a wall. Is God the wall? No. But he was able to walk through the wall. What about when he was halfway through? <laughs> what about when he was halfway through the wall? Like if he appeared here and he walked through that table, if he was halfway through the table, is God now the table? No. Do you understand what I'm saying? Occupying the same space, how can this happen? We don't know. It's a divine mystery. We don't have to know. We don't have to know. How can angels be here and be in something and be around something and we don't see them? Because God hasn't revealed it to us. That's why. Clearly they exist in a plane that isn't the same to us. We don't see the door open. If you go, oh, that was an angel. An angel just came in. Or a demon. We don't know. Could be a good angel. Could be a bad angel. Right? We don't know. No, it doesn't happen. That's not the way it works. We don't even believe that's the way it works, do we? But we don't somehow think that, well, all of the room is an angel. All of the room is God. Of course not. Pantheism does believe this. We believe that God brought the universe into existence by the spoken word. He did not make the universe from part of himself. He didn't take part of his essence and spawn the universe from it, turn it into it, so that there's a spark of God in all things. It's not the way it worked. He's completely independent of his creation. He has no need of it, and it is completely dependent on him for its existence. There is a separation. What God would it be if God wasn't above creation and he just was creation? No God at all. How would you worship him? Worship creation? Yes. Gaia, right? That's why they worship the earth. The goddess of the earth. Nature. It's pantheism. Pantheism. Wrong. God is not the earth. God is not the earth. God is not the sky. God is not the trees. God is not the birds. He is over all of them. They are all of his creation. Last point. God in his triune nature is clearly revealed in Scripture. Any attempt to recognize a part of the Godhead as less than God is a direct contradiction of and a rebellion against God's word. That's the long and the short of it. That's it, in a summary fashion. All of these arguments, all of these different philosophies that are opposed to the Trinity, all of them are rebellion against what God teaches us in his word. He clearly is defined as three persons, sometimes in the scripture seen at the same time together, acting in harmony, always. And that's why the Trinity is so important. So when someone questions it, when someone brings it up to you, when you yourself have some doubts about it, reflect back on these things. That the Trinity is essential to your faith. Let's close in a word of prayer.